And if I learned anything in the State Department, it's follow the money. A regime committing not one, but perhaps three genocides. You're not supposed to look, because that then blows up the Green New Deal. The reality is, it's a Red New Deal. All that money goes to China. A moral question facing many major corporations in America today. Do you really want to rely on somebody who's stealing somebody's liver? In this two-part episode, I sit down with Professor Robert Destro, former Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights and Labor, DRL. He is also a law professor at the Catholic University of America's Columbus School of Law. On the eve of Human Rights Day, we discuss threats to human rights globally, from state-sanctioned organ harvesting in China, to lockdowns of the unvaccinated in Germany, to COVID restrictions in the United States. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kellek. Professor Robert Destro, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Well, thanks for having me. Well, Bob, we're on the eve here as we premiere this episode of Human Rights Day. And, you know, I'm looking at the human, I've been looking at the human rights situation in the world for a long time. Um, and, you know, in the last few years, I think, unarguably, it's, it's gone quite a bit downhill. <laughs> um, give us a state of human rights in the world today perspective here. Well, it depends on how you look at it. Uh, it. The situation is pretty bad around the world. We've got at least three genocides going on in China. You've got a genocide going on in, uh, in Burma. You've got genocide going on in Africa and the Middle East. Uh, and those are, just the, those are just the big ticket items. Uh, much of the, uh, there's also lockdowns in Australia and Austria and Germany here in the United States. The problem is that, that we don't have a really good language to describe you know, all the different, the whole range of human rights problems. For those of us who are in the field of human rights, it's a pretty challenging time. Well, yeah, so actually, I, this is great that you, you frame it this way, because we'll actually, we're, I want to talk about both right. of these areas. And you know, one, one focuses more on, say, persecution of marginalized groups. Right. Um, the other is more this kind of broader question of whole kind of populations, societies. I mean, let, let's start with, well, frankly, let's start with China. Okay, this is, you know, I, at least three genocides. Actually, the Uyghur uh, Tribunal is, I think, set to, I think by the time we premiere this, they will have made a judgment. Um, so, you know, very briefly, you know, give us a picture of that. I know most people are, will be more familiar, and let's get into the other ones. Well, I mean, during my time in the State Department, I spent a lot of time uh, working on questions like slave labor in Xinjiang you know, on the human rights violations against the Uyghurs, against uh, organ harvesting. I mean, this, the whole range of, of ways in which the CCP, you know, suppresses that whole community. Uh, they call them terrorists. Absolutely pervasive surveillance state. I mean, so the, the range of human rights violations ranges from you know, snatching people off the street you know, and then putting them in a camp and then making them work 
to snatching them off the street, putting them in a camp, and harvesting their organs. It's just mind-boggling when you, when you look at the, the scope and depth of the human rights depravity that we've got going on there. And there's this, you know, element of, you know, kind of population reduction through forced sterilization and so forth. Like people, you know, people don't often understand sort of the dimensions that go into the designation of a term like genocide. I mean, and this, this would be one of them, this, right? Yeah, no, that, that's one. When you're trying to get rid of an entire community, whether it's a faith community, an ethnic community, you know, you know forced uh, population control, forced migration, you know, the, the kinds of oppression that you see, forced labor, I mean, all of them, when you look at them all taken together, there are statutory definitions of genocide uh, that we don't need to get into here. You know, but the, but the fact is that, that the world really understands what a genocide is. You know, it's understood around the world what it is. It's just that policymakers hate to call it that because nobody quite knows what to do about it. Well, and okay, so, so many directions we can take right yeah. now. But, you know, Tibet, you don't hear very much about these days. Uh, you know, maybe 10 years ago, you heard a lot about what was happening in Tibet. And frankly, a lot of similar things that are happening to the Uyghur people today. But you don't hear much about Tibet. Well, you don't hear much about Tibet because it's a small community. Uh, the Chinese Communist Party has decided that the Tibetan Plateau is prime real estate for military, for water, for all the, the natural resources that it has. And the Tibetan diaspora is, is far flung, you know, and, and they don't get a lot of press. You know, so, so unfortunately the Western press doesn't give you sustained coverage of what's happened. But what's happened to the Tibetans is more or less what's going to happen to the Uyghurs. There's a lot more of them, so it's going to take longer. But there's absolutely no doubt that they're trying, the Chinese Communist Party wants to eliminate Tibetan culture. You know, and that's part of the definition of genocide. So, but so what has happened to the Tibetan people exactly? Because I suspect some people watching might not even know. You know, there's been population control. They make it difficult for children to learn the Tibetan language. You know, there's the, they want to take over the, the training of, of Tibetan Buddhist monks. They want to control the succession of the Dalai Lama, the reincarnation. The idea of, a, of a, a government bureaucracy, whether it's Chinese or German or American, deciding that it's going to be in charge of reincarnation is just laughable. You know, but the fact is that that's what they want to do. They've, they've said, we're in charge, just like they're now in charge of appointing Catholic bishops. So their view is, is that they get to control everything. So there's this idea, when you think about genocide, you often think of the Holocaust, so mass systematic killing of people, maybe millions of people, right? Um, so, but genocide is more than that, just for the record, right? Yeah, it's, it's more than killing. I mean, it's the systematic destruction of a community. And so you could, the idea, you could have committed genocide just as effectively by taking the Jewish community of Europe and dispersing it all over the world so they could no, would no longer have a, an identity as the Jewish community. I mean, and that's when, when you start seeing the, the discussion of Israel and the legitimacy of Israel. 
Israel is the Jewish community's self-defense mechanism. You know, the, this, is, this is the place where they can be together and defend themselves collectively and individually. And, and the idea that you would question that for any community, it's just not acceptable. Let's jump to the third genocide, and presumably you're talking about the genocide of Falun Gong practitioners, which is, which is different. It's, it's a, now a faith community of sorts, right. of practitioners, not, of, not an ethnic community, although it's, those are also faith communities and right. ethnic communities. But you know, faith communities are not always ethnic communities. I mean, when you look at Christians, you know, there's a billion Christians. You know, there's a billion Muslims. So to say that the, there's no question that the Falun Gong meets the definition of a religious community, at least under American law, that systematic attempts to wipe them out, to disperse them, to force them underground, is every bit the same kind of a genocide as, as going after people. It's, you know, you say, well, how can you compare killing somebody with forcing them underground? You know, we're not talking about the impact on them. We're talking about the impact, of the intent of the perpetrator. And that's something that often gets lost. We focus on the, the, the victim when we really need to be focusing on the perp. Okay, so let's talk about, you mentioned forced organ harvesting, something that is, you know, there's some evidence now in this Uyghur tribunal that the Uyghur people are being used for this for this murder for organs industry yeah. in China. It began with the use of Falun Gong practitioners, I mean, at scale, from, from what we know. I mean, the, some of the estimates I've seen have been something like, you know, 60 to 100,000 transplants a year with no credible uh, donor, right? No, no credible right. organ donation system, so probably mostly for Falun Gong, from Falun Gong because it was the largest, you know, this big community. So, so there is an element of killing, although it's not, uh, you know, extremely well documented. Well, you know, it's, it's more documented than you would think. I mean, that the, if you know what you're looking for, you can find it. And, and that's the trick in any kind of forensic investigation of any kind of a human rights or civil rights problem. You know, so we can see it in the medical journals. You know, we can see, you know, the Chinese doctors who were writing about all the advances they've made in organ transplantation. Well, where'd you get all the, the organs from? You know, so we have anecdotal evidence. We also have some, some publication evidence. We also have other countries like Israel, for example, making a writing a law that says you have to prove the provenance of the organ that you went out of the country to get. You know, so when we talk about organ har harvesting, you know, that's human trafficking. I mean, it's, it's trafficking in organs. I mean, you've got sex trafficking, you've got organ trafficking, you know, you've got labor trafficking, you know, but then when you aim it at a specific community as a part of your intent to get rid of that community, then that's what takes you off into the genocide. Well, and you, and you feel that's well established here? I think it's, let's just put it this way, there's a lot of evidence, whether or not it's been well established and for, for who decides is that's up in the air still. Well, so what is the evidence? Well, the, well, we're talking about the evidence of 
organ trafficking? We're talking about the evidence of this murder for organs industry, specifically right. having some intent to eliminate the Falun Gong community. Well, let's let's separate the two for a minute. Okay. I mean, it was probably 20 years ago, maybe a little bit longer, when friend and colleague uh, Ambassador Marianne Glendon uh, had spent some time in Europe, in Leuven, Belgium. And Leuven is one of the, the big transplant centers in Europe. And she used the phrase at the time, organs of indeterminate origin. Hmm. It was like, what did you say? I mean, what do you mean, organs of indeterminate origin? She says, they knock people over the heads and they steal their kidneys. I mean, this is, this is what you're talking about. And it happens not just in China, it happens in other places. You know? And so this question of, you know, you're going to go get a new kidney or you're going to go get a new liver, you know, shouldn't you have to explain where it's coming from? I mean, because the, you know, you can sell, if you sold the whole body, if you sold the whole person alive, everybody would say, oh, that's slavery. You know, well, if you sold the dead body, everybody would say, well, you know, you're selling parts. Well, <laughs> that's exactly what's happening. You know, and then when you start, when you aim it at, so that's organized crime in body parts. Okay, then you add the question of are you targeting a community? You know, and is it a part of a longer or a, a broader purpose? to eliminate that community, that's what takes you into crimes against humanity and what takes you into genocide. So how does that work with respect to the Falun Gong? Well, with respect to the Falun Gong, the question is how do we get, how do we get international decision makers, you know, the United States government, the Germans, the Australians, whomever, the Indians. How do we get people to take, to take account of the fact that the people you're dealing with in China are human traffickers and that they're committing genocide against their own people? I mean, because the Falun Gong are not an ethnic group. You know, they're not like the Uyghurs. They're not like the Tibetans. You know, they are, they are ordinary Chinese people who have been targeted because of their beliefs. You know, if we did that here, everybody would be up in arms, and, and rightly so. So this, this question of how do you get people's attention on the outside to bring pressure on the Chinese government on the inside. Why do you think the Chinese regime, actually I'm remembering something you've said, you said that Falun Gong to the Chinese regime is, is presents an existential threat of sorts, and they're, you know, obsessed with eliminating it, yeah. um, for lack of a better term, as horrific as that sounds. Um, what, what have you gleaned over the years as to why this reality exists? Well, you know, this is something that during the course of my tenure in the State Department, we were always very aware of who we were allowed to invite into the building and who we weren't allowed to invite. And so during the course of, of my tenure as Assistant Secretary, I was able to get permission to bring in the representative of the Central Tibetan Authority. And that was a big deal for them and for us. The, the idea of bringing in somebody from the Falun Gong would have been, I mean, it would have enraged the Chinese Communist Party 
to do that. So, and I wondered, you know, like, well, why is that? You know, why do they consider them such a threat? And so as I did my own research, uh, trying to say, well, if I'm going to try and go to the secretary and get permission to get somebody in the building, you know, how do I explain this to myself? And, and it turned out that you know, some of the people that I talked to were actually, they're Falun Gong practitioners. They learned about Falun Gong practice from the Chinese government. It was, it was back in the early 90s, it was, a, you know, it was physical fitness, it was meditation, it was something that, that, that was considered to be getting you in touch with authentic Chinese culture. And then my, as, as I say, my own research showed me that, you know, toward the middle to the, you know, like 96, 97, the Ministry of State Security realized how many Falun Gong practitioners there are. You know, and there were probably more than members of the Communist Party. And in a totalitarian society like that, you can't have a rival organization with a rival view of what China stands for. You know, because this is a debate about China. You know, what is China? And, and you know, the, the Chinese Communist Party thinks about those things. I mean, a very good former, uh, now unfortunately deceased friend of mine, was put on a panel by the Chinese Communist Party. He was a philosopher. And this is, what does it mean to be Chinese in the 21st century? This happened back in the late 80s, early 90s. You know, so this idea of what does it mean to be Chinese, you know, obviously it means not Falun Gong today. So I mean, that that's when you say existential threat, there's a different vision of what China is than what the Communist Party sees. So you mean the Communist Party sees the party always in the first position? Yes, and that's why certain people have described the Communist Party is basically communism as a is a European virus that affected the that affected the Chinese body politic. No, I, I've I've heard that. Yeah, as well. Um, you know, it's basically a European import. It's not Chinese. No, it's not Chinese. And that's. You know, that's just interesting to think about. It's, in, in one respect, to use their own phrase, it's, it's Chinese with European characteristics. <laughs> yeah, to, to, to flip the Chinese characteristics <laughs> right, around. Right, well, right. So I can't help but think right now that, you know, Mao, I think, unequivocally, with the support of this ideology, is the number one mass murderer in the world. Right. Right. And that's, I mean, that's what, you know, that's what people, a lot of people think of when it comes to China, right, was, is Mao's, Mao's legacy. I mean, when you just look at the numbers, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, you know, it's astonishing. You know, Stalin was no slouch either, nor was Hitler. But like I say, you can't compare the communities because what happened to each one of them is so horrific that, that there's no comparison. Mm. You know, but if you compare the mindset of the perpetrators, they're mass murderers. They're genocidal mass murderers who would stop at nothing to, to, get, to get their way. I mean, and that's, that doesn't just happen there. That's, that's why you have 
the Burmese generals. <laughs> you know, you have what's going on in Nigeria. You have ISIS. I mean, it's all the same from the perpetrator's perspective. It's the will to power and a complete disregard for the humanity of your victim. Well, and so this is an interesting question. I just want to touch on this a little bit because, you know, under communism, from what I understand, right, from, you know, a, a bunch of research that some of my uh, uh, fellows on the Chinese side of the Epoch Times have done, that if once you become a quote-unquote enemy of the state in China, your physical person no longer, the dignity of the physical person is completely removed. And so basically you're, why not use you for body parts? Why not use you in whatever way? It's just, it's just physical material now. That, that concept I, I, it blows my mind. I don't know, I don't know quite what to think about it. Well, you know, I, I don't know what to think about it either, uh, except that the first stage of a genocide is always cutting the other out of the fold. Mm. Okay, so if you look, the Genocide Watch has done a very nice, uh, has done a very nice job on setting out the, the stages of genocide. You know, and the first one is to identify the other as the outsider. And then where, what, where it goes from there, you know, may be cultural, uh, you know, I don't know. Uh, you know, we see that we see that happening in many other places. You know, in our own history, we've defined you know African Americans as outsiders, you know, immigrants as outsiders. I mean, we all do it because human beings are by nature familial and tribal, and that's just that's part of humanity. You know, the whole point of having a, an organized society is so that you get away from that. Having something like this that people can again lose their human dignity as a by association with a group or simply by state decree. I, what what do you think about that from a human rights perspective? Well, you know, like, that's the key phrase you use is human dignity. Now, you don't get your dignity from the state. I mean, the state. This is part of the American concept of state is that that we give up our a certain degree of, of our autonomy and our liberty for the common protection of the state. But we get our dignity from God. You know, we don't get we get it as a part of our human nature. And and that's the human side of human rights that doesn't get talked about all that often. But the state cannot take your human dignity away. I mean that's not, you know, the state can use force and kill you or beat you up or imprison you, but it can't take your dignity away. But it can pretend to do so, or it can... No, it claims the right to do so, but because the individual is not important, the collective is important. Why did it take, you know, until basically, you know, the, the, the Trump administration under, under your uh, you know, jurisdiction, and then later also under the Biden administration, for people involved in this persecution of Falun Gong practitioners to actually be sanctioned? Well, the sanctions process is a, is a long end, and because there are really legal consequences, you, you have to give people due process. You even have to give murderers due process. But we're, we're talking 20, you know, 20 plus, 20 years, right? Well, yeah. you know, a part of that, and again, this gets into another thing we've discussed, but Part of that is the perception that human rights is somehow 
kind of the icing in realpolitik is the cake, mm. you know, or trade is the cake and human rights is the icing. You know, when the reality is that we're dealing with human relationships across the board, whether they're trade relationships, economic, you know, uh, military, you know, it's all about humans relating to humans. And so the idea that you could divorce human rights, we can set it aside for the time being while we deal with a pandemic or while we deal with trade is ludicrous. You know, because if you know that the person on the other side of the table doesn't even consider you to be a human being, then how can you have a contract with them? You know, you just can't. I mean, the, the, one of the most important human rights laws in this country was the Civil Rights Act of 1871 that said that African Americans had exactly the same contract rights as white people do. Because contract is private law, you know, and only people who are equal can make enforceable contracts. You know, look at how the Chinese Communist Party dealt with the contract about Hong Kong. You know, they didn't consider themselves to be making contracts with equals. They considered themselves to be making contra a contract with an invader. And so when the invader was gone, so was the contract. Fascinating. Well, this is, this is kind of a, obviously a foundational question, you know, what, what, what you're discussing here right now. Because let's talk about the Olympics, right? There's, right. there's a, you know, a diplomatic boycott has been announced and effectively here in the U.S. Uh, I think the UK is planning to follow suit. That's what it looks like anyway. Um, some other countries as well, possibly. Um, you know, at the same time, there's an Olympics happening as we speak. I've, off I've said this, you know, sort of on record. I mean, to me, it feels worse than the, you know, 1936 Olympics in Nazi Germany because we actually know what China is doing. You know, three, one, for sure, at, you know, three genocides um, and we're going we're going to have an Olympic Games there and even in Nazi Germany we didn't even know exactly what the what the not German Nazis intentions were what do you think about this well I think it's window dressing to be honest with you the um, I think that you need to let young people get together and do their sports I mean, that we do because we celebrate people, you know, people's expertise. I mean, you know, bow and arrow or hunting or tennis. I mean, all these things are wonderful. Skiing. I mean, it's amazing what people do. This is part of that human creative spirit. The mistake I think we've made over time is to allow governments to, quote, sponsor the Olympics. You know, I mean, that's the, you know, when, when they become a national spectacle, they lose their, they become political and they're not sports anymore. You know, and, and so, you know, I've never been a fan of, of not letting the athletes participate. What I'm more concerned about is, is setting aside, we know what's going on in Xinjiang, for example. We know what's going on in Tibet. You know, but we're gonna import solar panels, you know, made by slave labor in Xinjiang. You know, that, that we got to put our money where our mouth is, hmm. you know, and, and, it's the, and, and I say that deliberately with the emphasis on money. Hmm. 
You know, because again, if I learned anything in the State Department, it's follow the money. You know, so the, the fact that you're not going to take a suite, you know, in the hotel in Beijing is not the money we're talking about. The money we're talking about is the money that goes to big companies, you know, that extract the ore and the, the minerals and, and then process them using slave labor. That's the money we're talking about. And that's what, that's why you can raise questions about, and as Congress did in the infrastructure bill, was, well, give us a report on how much carbon are you burning to build a solar panel? You know, how much slave labor is there in that supply chain? I will guarantee you that's going to be completely downplayed because that's where the money is. And where the money is, that's where you're not allowed to look? That's where you're not allowed, you're not supposed to look because that then blows up the Green New Deal. It then, because the reality is based on money, it's a Red New Deal because all, you know, China controls 95% of the solar panel market. You know, so all that money goes to China. You know, and, if, and, and American law currently forbids the importation of anything that's made with slave labor. Are we gonna enforce that rule or not? If we're not gonna enforce it, then don't tell me about, don't tell me about diplomatic pressure on China. It's, it's complete window dressing at that point. Well, you're talking about something much broader here. I mean, there's so many of these financial connections. You know, how many company, you know, Western companies were involved in developing the, the surveillance state in Xinjiang again, but, you right. know, and, and frankly throughout. And this has been something that's been in development for decades. I mean, there were, you know, U.S. companies involved in the development of this great firewall that keeps, you know, Absolutely. most Chinese yeah. uh, outside of the, I guess, the global information architecture, right? Well, you know, but you're not supposed to notice that. I mean, you recall from a few years ago when they talked about blood diamonds. I mean, that, that was a catchy phrase. You know, well, what phrase do you use for solar panels? I mean, it's, it's like at the blood end. Blood silicon. You know, blood, you know, it could be blood silicon. You know, it could be, you know, I don't know. I, I just don't know what you do. But, but the reality is that in this country, we have accepted the proposition that products are not to be made in environments where you discriminate on the basis of race or sex or anything else. And we will hold those perpetrators accountable either by money, you know, by firing them, by doing whatever, right? Why can't we do that in the international sphere too? You can't set, in this country we haven't divided business and human rights. Why are we doing it with respect to China? Well, why? You tell me. Well, because there's too much money involved. There's a lot of corruption there. Look at LeBron James. I mean, he and I grew up in the same hometown. You know, and he refuses to acknowledge, he's so focused on his basketball that he's not focusing on the human rights things that he says he's so concerned about. It's either money or it's, it, 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 it's, you know, I don't know. So, you know, it, it, this <laughs> makes me think of this broader, this broader question, like it's only really meaningful when it costs you something. Exactly. Right? Exactly. That's interesting. It, it is, and it's also true that some of this stuff is so enormous that it's hard to get your head around what we're talking about.
I mean, and, and that's why certain, that's why there's this narrative out there. You know, that the, why is it, for example, that China has an exemption on its carbon emissions until 2050, 2060? So that the rest of the world can pollute China and then in virtue signal that we're all putting social, you know, we're all putting solar panels on our roofs. You know, what about the Tibetan Plateau? has five major world rivers and, and the, the downstream countries, India, Vietnam, Cambodia, I mean, they're all really worried the, the Chinese are going to shut off the water. That's a you lot know, of leverage. That's a lot of leverage and it's already starting. You know, the next big commodity that people are going to fight over is water. You know, we see in our own West, you know, the fights over water. I mean, when you get into international space with armies, that's serious business we're talking about. So this idea that you can somehow separate, uh, you know, business and human rights, you just can't. Well, and you raise this other question, you know, of this idea of kind of offshoring the, the things you don't want to be responsible for. Oh, yeah. I mean, we see that here in the United States. I mean... Where does most of California's electric power come from? Not generated in California. You know, that the, the pollution is, is done outside. And in China, I mean, the part of the reason why you can buy cheap stuff from China is that the cost of pollution is, is borne by the people of China. It's got the most polluted air, the most polluted water. You know, and what, we, we get to take advantage of that you know, don't talk to me about human rights. You know, if you're talking about the right to a clean environment, then, then maybe I should have to pay more. That's, that's implicitly one of the questions in the whole tariff question, is the Chinese have an advantage? You know, well, I mean, I saw an editorial in the New York Times, well, we all have to pay for it. Well, no paid, no gain. I mean, I should have to pay for it if, if the choice is you know, do I get a discount because a slave made, made the Christmas tree bulbs? That's a no-brainer. Most Americans would say, take it. You know, I'm, I'm not interested. You know, and the ones that, that are interested nonetheless don't talk to me about human rights then. I think the cynical people, you know, kind of, I guess, doing these things say, well, the Americans say they want that, but they really don't, so we'll give them, you know, we'll kind of, we, we, we won't, We'll keep that hidden from them. Yeah, but know. that's transparency. I mean, do we, do we, you know, it would be a lot better if we just said, we're going to impose an offsetting tariff for the environmental degradation you do. You know, if you want to compete, because our companies are not allowed to pollute, their companies are. And so, in effect, aren't we, aren't we accessories both before and after the fact of that crime? Of course we are. You know, but, you know, is it, those supply chains are really, I mean, everybody knows what a supply chain is now. You know, and, and what we need to do is be looking, just like you would say, blood diamonds. Well, there's blood cobalt. <laughs> there's blood silicon. You know, there's all that. And, and we need to be paid. People who are serious about human rights need to take those supply chains very seriously.
but you're saying human rights, to go back to your analogy, are the cake. Yes, they're, they're, they're like the yeast in the bread, you know, or the baking, the, the flour, it's, it's part, humans, we consume that which other people make. So the, you know, even Marx said that the capital is congealed labor. You know, so what I do, you know, when you do this interview and then you edit it, it's, it's my background and your expertise in editing and together we produce a product. You know, that's, that's, that's human ingenuity. The same thing is true with a widget or a solar panel. It's not about panels, it's not about cobalt, it's about the people who make it. And we rely on each other. Do you really want to rely on somebody who's stealing somebody's liver? I mean, really. I mean, it's, it's almost a stupid question to ask. Yeah, well, it just, you know, it makes me think we're, you know, not in a very good state of human rights. No, we're um, not. I mean, and, and that's the piece where I think we've forgotten the human part of human rights. We're, we're very focused on the rights part, speech, sex, right to free trial, all those, all those really important things. But, but we, we value the right to free speech and the right to freedom of association because that's what people do. We can't communicate with one another. We know that a baby will die if it's abandoned. You know, so that human touch is really important because we're human. If we were some kind of a silicon Borg, then we might look at rights in a different way. But we are who we are. And that's, that's why the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was such an important development. So this makes me think of the, the, the I guess, the theme that the UN has uh, laid out for this year's Human Rights Day, which is Article 1 of the UDHR, all human beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights equality. And you mentioned earlier that this idea that rights ultimately have to come from, I guess, something transcendent from God right. uh, as opposed to from... Well, it's, it, to me, it's not clear, actually, in the UN Declaration where those rights actually come from. Well, I mean, they ha remember, any kind of a UN document is going to be a consensus document. So there are certain things you just don't say, you know, because you're not going to get agreement. There were lots of disagreements going into the UDHR, and the fact that they actually got it through is, is a miracle all by itself. You know, but the idea that we're born equal in dignity is like, well, where does that dignity come from? You know, you don't have to be a, a believer to, to take the position that, that there's something special about human nature. You know, that, that we're all equal in dignity. You know, and the same thing is with rights. You know, we're all equal in our dignity and the rights that we have, you know, basically are the ways in which we operationalize our dignity. So the, this question of equality, uh, there's a big debate today about equality, but you know, the way our Constitution deals with it is equality of protection. And that's what the UDHR says. It's equality of protection. You know, not, not some kind of an abstract notion of equalization. Mm. Interesting. What do you make of, and I, I hear this all the time, 
What do you make of statements? You know, we, we, just, we just spoke about this idea that this, the human, violations of human rights are frankly everywhere. They're here, they're in China, everywhere. You'll have someone like, for example, Ray Dalio on the record, you know, being challenged, you know, look at all this, look at all these violations in China and his response, you know, roughly speaking, is, is well, the U.S. has its own problems too, so let's not, let's not talk about that. Well, there's a little bit of hypocrisy there. And, and when I say that, I mean that you want to talk about it here, you know, well, why can't we talk about it there? It's either we're going to talk about it or we're not going to talk about it. But you can't talk about it selectively. The reason people talk about it here is because we actually have a place we can go to complain about it. We can complain in the media, we can complain in the courts. I mean, the, the way the Constitution is framed, they divided up the authority, so we always have somebody to go complain to. That's what the right, the right to petition for redress of grievances is. You know, so the only time you don't complain is when you think it's not worth your time. And what he's implicitly conceding is, well, don't waste your breath. The Chinese aren't going to do anything. You know, but he'll complain here because we have mechanisms here. And that's why this place is different than that place. Mm. Fascinating. So you made some suggestions already about how to address China, and frankly, this would apply, I guess, to other other countries Completely, as well. Yeah, not um, just China. But so you've suggested, you know, sort of some sort of tariff, for example, on the pollution. That's an example. Um, but in our current situation, you know, there's this these deep financial ties, you know, of China into the whole international monetary system, and certainly the U.S. as a center of that. You're now in a situation where you can. You can be a decision maker. You're, you're not maybe faced with the bureaucracy that you were um, in, in the State Department. What is it that you do to try to somehow either hold China accountable or just cre simply create a better situation for the human rights of its people in the context of you know, that being a value of this country? The connection between business and, and by business, I'm speaking broadly now from, you know, extraction, you know, food production, and banking. So that, that's the whole gamut. That that's really where the action is in human rights. Is you know, governments will react when businesses react. In Germany, you know, Hitler couldn't have pulled off any of what he did without the private sector. The German bureaucracy didn't manufacture Zyklon B gas. That was done by IG Farben. You know, so this question of, you know, business and human rights, you know, goes, you know, when you look at who was held accountable, that's, that's what the Nuremberg codes and trials were all about, holding everybody accountable who participated. Right now, there, there's a lot of people not being held to account. Then there's even questions about who would be doing the holding to account, right? And whether they have the, I don't know, moral right to do that. Well, as soon as you deny that, that we have the moral right to ask the questions, you've thrown human rights out the window. Uh, the, there, was all, there was this sense after World War II 
the international organizations, these multinational organizations would be the way to hold people accountable. You know, like every other human institution, however, they're subject to, to being corrupted. And that's what we see in, in many of them. I mean, when you look at the debate over the UN Human Rights Council, hmm. you know, who are the members of the council? You know, Iran, China. I mean, it's it's. You think, is this is this some kind of a joke? You know, because then you get into these questions of moral equivalence, and well, you do it, and we do it, and at the end, it it completely ignores the moral accountability that's at the heart of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. This is the concern I have about companies you know, that are, that are participating in the creation of the surveillance state. It's like they know exactly what that technology is going to be used for. And they're not averse to using it themselves. I mean, this was the creation of the Great Firewall of China. You know, my problem is, is the Great Firewall of China beginning to envelop us? Coming up on American Thought Leaders, if you allow people to say, oh, declaring an emergency means that rights don't apply, then there's going to be lots of emergencies. With the rise of big tech censorship and lockdowns of the unvaccinated, are the seeds of China's internet firewall and Orwellian social credit system now spreading to the West? As soon as you can use pejoratives for people, whether you call it anti-vaxxer or anti-science or racist or whatever you want to call it, that's the road to tyranny. In part two of my interview with Professor Robert Destro, we discuss the state of human rights in the United States and the rest of the Western world. Are there ever moral grounds for suspending human rights? You have to stand up against tyranny, otherwise it will eat you alive.